A tragic murder is solved after 16 years. From 1984 to 2000, Laura Salmon's murder went unsolved until DNA testing properly stored evidence and determined investigators bust the case wide open. But why did it take 16 years to solve this case? Well, let's talk true crime. Welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Before we get into it, I just want to let everybody know, those of you who uh, don't follow Hell No on Instagram, we will be changing up our schedule. Instead of releasing Friday, we will now be releasing on Mondays. So that is the only announcement I have. Let's just get right into this week's case. In 1984, Laura Salmon was 18 years old and attending a university in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. She was also working at a grocery store, making friends, dating, living in a dorm, and living her best life. But for whatever reason, dorm life wasn't quite working out for Laura. So a few days before May 31st in 1984, Laura moved in with her father, John, and his wife, Brenda, who is Laura's stepmother. Laura was navigating her way through the beginning stages of adulthood, and her whole life was in front of her. I could imagine this was a very exciting time for Laura, starting university, meeting new friends. Living in a dorm is always so much fun. I I couldn't find out the reason why she moved out of the dorm, but, you know, I hope she had a good time when she was in there because dorms can be really fun. Uh, She chose to go to university in the same town she grew up in, Um, so she was still close to family, but also in a new environment, meeting new people, experiencing new things. She graduated from high school in Murfreesboro the year before. Uh, While in high school, Laura was living with her mother, Lorene McKay. During her last high school year, she did have a boyfriend named Kyle Gilly. Kyle had not yet graduated as he still had his final year to complete. So they they were in the same town, but they were in different schools now. And it seemed like Laura wanted to move on and, and see other people. Kyle wasn't letting go so easily. And he even seemed to be stalking Laura and showing up when perhaps he wasn't invited or even Uh, welcomed to places where she was. This concerned Laura's mother and she told Laura to get a restraining order, but Laura was worried how Kyle would react to that. And that's, that's pretty rightly so of her because we all know restraining orders, they have their faults. Uh, When Laura had been in high school living with her mother, Kyle was not allowed into their home as a rule Laureen had put into place. She would often hear Laura on the phone with Kyle And what she would hear, the conversations they were having, this was quite alarming to a mother because she could hear Laura screaming and crying during these calls with Kyle. So something seemed to be going on between them and it it wasn't good. And Lorene said, okay, you know, he's not allowed over here. Apparently Kyle was the jealous type, but to pair with that horrible trait, he was also violent. It was even reported that Kyle was violent towards Laura. 
He would get angry, and according to more than one of Laura's friends, Kyle would assault Laura. One incident included him hitting her head off a car. Um, It was also speculated very strongly that he had knocked out her teeth on one occasion, Uh, although he claims it was an accident. Yeah, an accident. That's a hell of an accident. From everything I read, it seemed like Kyle didn't love Laura at all. To me, it sounds like he he craved the control over her. He needed this control over her. And as she went off to university, he was losing that control. Uh, Despite the fear though, that he held over Laura, she was still moving on with her life. At least she was trying her, her best to do so. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, case closed. Tell me no more. I can see exactly where this is going. Well, just wait because It took 16 years to solve this case. All right, now I'm going to talk about the days leading up to what happened. May 27th, 1984. Laura and her friend Dan Goodman, they went to the movies together. This was just friends seeing a movie together. They knew each other through university. I would say that Kyle didn't know about this. I don't think this doesn't sound like something that he would approve of. Uh, So I don't think Kyle knew about this, but keep the name Dan Goodman in your mind because he's going to come back into this later. May 30th, around 7 p.m., Kyle Gilly meets up with Laura at her grandmother's house. So this is a couple days later, okay? May 30th, uh, Kyle Gilly meets up with Laura at her grandmother's house. Before this, he says that he was in Florida until the 29th, visiting family or doing whatever he was doing there. And according to him, he and Laura, they left together they had sex in his car um, and then he said around 10 30 uh, he and Laura departed ways and he thought that she was going home and then he went to work all night until 7 a.m the next morning so he had a night shift somewhere that same night the night of May 30th after Kyle and Laura depart Laura and her friend Trina they go to a nightclub around 11 p.m And that was when Trina got off work. So this would mean that after Kyle and Laura parted ways, he went to work and Laura had plans that she, I'm assuming, did not tell Kyle about. I I would imagine he didn't know about this because if he did, I could imagine it would start a huge argument. He may become violent towards her. So she probably told him, yep, I'm going home. You go to work. And then she went to pick up. Trina and Trina is her has been her friend since childhood they've been friends for a long time and they also work together at the grocery store so that's where Laura was going to pick up Trina Trina finished work hey let's go to the club sounds like a fun night so May 30th 11 p.m. Laura and Trina head to the nightclub to dance have a good time do whatever university students do at a club and it was reported later that Laura was dancing with a man this night and may have had relations with this man as later we will see Um, there is evidence that Laura had consensual sex, uh, which left behind DNA evidence. Trina knew that Laura was dating Kyle. Okay. Obviously she knew this. And she also knew that Laura was seeing other men. Laura had asked that Trina keep it a secret. She's like, Hey, let's not talk about me seeing other men. Let's just, let's just keep this a secret. And Trina said, Laura said that because she was scared of what would happen if it was found out so if it if whoever it didn't specify who I think we can all assume 
who she's talking about, but she was like, please, I'm, I'm scared what will happen if this gets found out. Around 3.30 a.m., Trina and Laura leave the club and they head back to Laura's father's home where Laura was newly and currently residing at this time. Trina and Laura both fell asleep in the living room and they were seen there by Laura's stepmother, Brenda, and also Laura's father, John. So Laura had to work at 9 a.m., that morning at the grocery store. So her and Trina, they got up, they left the house before that time because according to Laura's time card, she got to work at 8.55 a.m. Trina, she didn't have to work until 2 p.m. So she caught a ride with Laura to the grocery store and then headed off, probably home, probably to get some more sleep. Uh, This is important to note because Trina knew where Laura parked her car that morning. So she knew because she went to work with her. During Laura's shift that day, her supervisor asked her to work late. Hey, can you stay back? Can you work? And Laura said no. And I absolutely love the reason why she said no as well. Um, So her supervisor asked, hey, can you work late today? Laura said no. I want to go swimming at my grandma's. (laughs) I just love that. That is such an 18-year-old's answer to being asked to work late. No, mm -mm, no, I'm going to go swimming at my grandma's. I just... I loved reading that. Uh, Laura's shift ended at 1 and she was clocked out at 1.09 that afternoon. So she leaves work at 1.09 with her coworker Sharon. So a, a woman named Sharon who she worked with finished at the same time. And she witnessed Laura change into jeans and a shirt and get in her car and leave. Sharon later also tells police that Laura told her that she was going swimming at her grandma's before she left. So she's like, bye Sharon, see you later, going swimming at my grandma's. Saw her change into her clothes, get in her car, and then drive away. Trina's shift started an hour later. Trina arrives just before two, and when she arrived, Laura's car was no longer where it was parked in the morning. So Laura's gone, the car's gone. It wasn't in the parking lot at all. Uh, But then around 3 or 3.30, Trina said she went outside to the parking lot to uh, assist in loading groceries into a customer's car, and she noticed Laura's car was there she was like what that looks like Laura's car but it was parked in a different spot from where uh Laura had parked in the morning so her car was there in the morning Trina knew exactly where it was parked Trina gets to work at two the car's gone an hour and a half later Trina sees the car in a different spot she's like okay what's going on with that Laura she had not showed up at her grandma's house She didn't get there for the swim. And she also was supposed to attend a meeting at the university that she went to. She had a meeting scheduled there to go talk about her academic history and just a university meeting. She didn't make it to that either. So after work, she essentially disappeared. It's between 1 p.m. and 6 p.m., that something horrible happened to Laura. Something that would take 16 years to get answers. Around 6 p.m. the evening of the 31st by a popular unofficial party spot. Um, I watched a forensic files on this. That was one of the many sources I used. And they called it kind of a lover's lane. But to me, it's it sounded more like a party spot. Like this was a place that... Um, university high school kids they would have bonfires drink booze it was out of the way probably the police didn't patrol the area and um so it was this spot that at 6 p.m 
a farmer. He's going around there. I don't know what he's doing, but there's a farmer and he sees something unusual in the area and he can't, he, he doesn't really know what's going on. So he gets closer to what he sees. And when he gets a bit closer, he can see some jeans and a jacket and somebody laying on the ground. And then he realizes what he's looking at is a deceased woman. What he stumbled upon, that is a sight he will never forget. This will probably haunt him for the rest of his life. He doesn't touch anything and he calls police or he goes into the police station. He, he somehow notifies police. When police arrive, they find a unidentified deceased woman laying on the ground wearing only her bra. She was covered up with two pairs of jeans draped over her body and along with the jeans is a black jacket. The jacket's sleeve was wrapped around her neck um, but that wasn't her cause of death. It wasn't strangulation. Also found was her underwear grasped in her right hand. So she was holding her underwear when whatever happened happened. Police observed the woman's bra was pulled up and she had scratch marks on her body, which was consistent with being dragged. They could also see the grass in a nearby area had been disturbed or matted. And this was a clear indication to them that a struggle had happened in this area. Found in the location around the victim were rocks with blood on them. So there was bloody rocks, blood, blood spattered rocks. Where the struggle took place was not the same exact spot the woman's body was discovered. And this could mean during or after the struggle, the victim was then dragged. Police were looking at the same area. Okay, they were in the same area, but there was two separate scenes not far from each other. One scene was where the crime started, where this um, tussle struggle happened. And the second scene was the end result. So as far as I could gather, you know, like I said, they weren't far from each other. Police did take video and photo evidence from the scene as well as gather physical evidence. The way police conducted the search and investigation of the scene was later scrutinized, saying the police did not wear gloves or secure the crime scene and evidence was left behind. Once the scene was processed, haphazardly I would say the victim was taken to the medical examiner to undergo an autopsy and she was also identified as 18 year old Laura Salmon the wounds afflicted and the scene tell investigators a brutal and violent story whoever killed Laura used a rock to beat her to death there were over 10 blunt force trauma injuries including to her head which caused a spiderweb fracture on her skull the examiner also noted she may have been punched in the face or hit with something in the face as her eyes, they were darkened. I believe it was both eyes. So she could have been punched in the nose. They, they're not really sure, but definitely something happened there because she had two black eyes. The autopsy also discovered Laura had had sex recently. But, and this is a big but, the sex she had was... It was consistent with it being consensual and they don't believe it was at the time of the attack. 
this leads us to believe that the evidence of, of sexual relations was not directly linked to her attacker. And it was a, it was a separate occasion altogether that, that had happened recently, but they don't believe it had anything to do with the crime committed against her. They say this because there was no sign of injuries associated with sexual assault, such as trauma to the vaginal area, therefore ruling out rape. The police now have the devastating task of informing Laura's family of what they have discovered. When police go to talk to Laura's mother, Laureen, she tells them right then and there, go look at Kyle Gilly, because she immediately thought that he had something to do with the death of her daughter. Immediately. She tells them everything she knows, and this is going to immediately point police in his direction. She had heard them crying and yelling on the phone. I don't know how much she knew, but she knew that they should look at Kyle. She was adamant about this. Go look at him. Laura's father and stepmother, they were also informed the same same evening. Um, and the entire family was just shocked and heartbroken. I mean, John had just seen his daughter that morning and so had Brenda. And now police are informing them of her horrific murder that evening. They just saw Laura and Trina sleeping peacefully on the couch after a fun night out. And everybody gets up in the morning. They all head to work. They they do what they're going to do. And then that evening, their whole world just falls apart. I read that the next day, uh, Laura's father went to the scene of the crime and he discovered evidence police had not taken with them, including Laura's necklace and bloody rocks. He himself brought them to police, which is just so heartbreaking to imagine this father going out to the the scene of the crime and looking over it and and finding bloody rocks in his his daughter's necklace that had been torn off her neck like it, it that is something no father should ever have to do after police had spoke to John and Brenda the day of the murder they now know that Laura had been out with Trina the night before so you know, they have to talk to her and they have to go talk to people that Laura worked with as well because they they knew that she worked. And from talking to Trina and the people she worked with and reviewing her, her, her time card at work, they start to form a timeline. After Laura's parents are notified of her death, Kyle actually called her father's home. And I'm not sure if he was calling and saying, hey, is Laura there? Or or what he was doing, what what he wanted from this call. But either way, John tells Kyle, you should go speak to police now. So Kyle heads down to the police station, and during his time there, they ask him some questions, but it wasn't treated as a formal questioning. It didn't seem like this was a, hey, let's sit down in this office, I'm going to ask you some questions and we're going to get to the bottom of this no later Kyle he will say that this was actually the first time he learned about Laura's death was when he went into the police station to um to to talk to them about this and it didn't seem like the information he gave them was recorded in any any manner Kyle told police that evening that um he did meet up with Laura before work on the 30th. So before he went to work the night before, between 6.30 and 10.30. 
the night of the 30th. He went to the, went to Laura's grandmother's house where Laura was, got Laura. Um, they drove somewhere. They had sex in his car. And then it, he and Laura parted ways and he had to go to work. And as for the day of the murder, the next day, he said he was supposed to meet up with Laura again after he finished work to go swimming, but he couldn't locate her. So police, they seem to be satisfied with this answer and he he walked out. He's like, I was sleeping all day. I finished work at seven. I slept until the afternoon and and yeah, someone was home. My dad got home and he can he can totally tell you that I was home sleeping. Pretty weak, pretty weak alibi, but police are like, okay. While at the police station, Laura's neighbor, Kim Brown, she was also there talking to police about Laura and she saw Kyle there. So the two were there at the same time. And she said that he appeared cold and emotionless. Kim, she ends up catching a ride home with Kyle from the station. Kyle said he he needed to go her way anyways because he wanted to stop in at Laura's father's home. And I can only assume that Kim went in with him because she says that when they got there, that Kyle went through Laura's things and took some letters and then left. And I didn't hear John and Brenda, John or Brenda, mention this interaction, this this moment in anything I read. So I'm assuming this was done unbeknownst to John and Brenda. I'm thinking they didn't know that Kyle went in there, went through their daughter's stuff and took some letters. After the procurement of these letters, uh, which I would just love to know what they contained in them, why he had to go get them, uh, Kim and Kyle, they go to a party. So they see each other at the police station. Kyle's like, oh, you need a ride home? No worries. I'm going that way anyways. Goes through Laura's things, takes some letters, and then is like, hey, Kim, let's go to a party. Yeah. So this is where things get really weird. Kyle starts to hit on Kim at this party, starts putting the moves on her. Mind you, this is the same evening Laura, his girlfriend, we'll say, was murdered. When Kim declines this advancement, he says something along the lines of, Laura won't know, she's dead. Wow. Kyle then shifts gears later and starts asking her why she thinks Laura was cheating on him and also added in that Laura deserved what she got. Just after midnight, police discover Laura's vehicle near the grocery store where she worked. They searched the car for evidence, but there wasn't much. They did manage to find a hair in the vehicle, and from what I gather, it didn't do them much good. For one, DNA testing was far from being advanced. And two, I suspect, I mean, I didn't hear it anywhere, but I suspect there was no root attached, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a, I'm not a forensic collector or tester, um, but I think they need that root to test DNA on hair. I think they need that root. I don't think it's the actual hair strand itself. I'm not sure if that does them much good. I think they need that actual root or the follicle, which I don't think this strand of hair did have. No fingerprints were recovered either, which to me suggests that the vehicle had been wiped down as not even Laura's fingerprints were found. 
So, I mean, it's her car. If the car hadn't been wiped down, surely they'd find her fingerprints. I mean, it's not like she's wearing gloves every time she gets in and out of her own car. However, investigators did discover dirt in the wheel wells of the vehicle. So they take a sample of this dirt to send to the FBI for analysis. Eventually, when the results are in, it is believed that the dirt in the wheel well of Laura's car matches the dirt found near where her body was found. This now connects her car to where she was murdered, but police don't know who drove the car from the scene of the crime to the grocery store. I'm sure they are very interested in that. Let's have a look at some suspects. Police, they had a lot of suspects and apparently they spoke to a very long list of them. I heard over a hundred suspects were questioned. Over a hundred or a hundred. I heard the number a hundred and I was like, wow, that is a lot. Kyle was again questioned by police though on June 6th, which is a week after the murder occurred. And at this time it is a formal interview. Kyle provided an alibi and his father came along with him to support this alibi. Kyle tells police he worked from the night of the 30th after he and Laura met up and had sex. Then he went to work. He got off work the morning of the 31st at 7 a.m. and went home to sleep. Kyle's father told police that he saw Kyle at home after he himself finished work at 3 p.m., on the 31st and that Kyle was home the entire time except between 5 and 5 30 when Kyle left to find Laura as they had plans to go swimming but came home after he couldn't find her so this was quite strange to me because Laura finished work at one telling her colleagues her supervisor and a a co-worker that she couldn't work late because she was going swimming and then she told Sharon I'm going swimming so why is he looking for her between 5 and 5 30 to go swimming if Laura's plan to go swimming was right after work at one. Since police believe Laura was murdered earlier than 5 p.m., they let Kyle go and they believe his alibi. They're like, yep, checks out. You've got your father here saying you were home sleeping all day. Um, But I mean, Kyle's father didn't finish until three. I don't know. This whole alibi just, it didn't, I'm like, why are, we'll get into it later. Okay. And also the thing is, is though, is that Remember, Laura finished work at 1 p.m. and she wasn't seen again until her body was discovered at 6 p.m. Isn't it possible that she could have been murdered between 1.15 and 3 p.m.? Is that is that not possible? But either way, again, um, like I said, police clear him. They're like, yeah, alibi's all good. But police do have him come back for another interview in July. In this July interview, Kyle again goes through the night of the 30th when he and Laura had sex in his car. He tells police that Laura went home after that and police suggest maybe she didn't. How do you know she went home? And this, for some reason, made Kyle very angry and he claims she wouldn't do that. And so perhaps police phrased it like, well, how do you, how do you know how do you know she didn't go home? How do you know she didn't go to the club or go on a date? And that's when Kyle got really upset and he actually jumped out of his chair. So maybe police suggested, well, maybe she was going out to the club with some friends and maybe she had a date. And of course he's like, oh, she wouldn't do that. And he got all angry. Again, 
Kyle is free to go, though. Uh, you know, police, they don't have enough evidence to arrest him. His alibi is being backed by his father that he was sleeping until almost 5 p.m. the day Laura was murdered. So they just check his his story, probably making sure it lines up with the last story they told him, and they let him go. So he's free to go again. During police's investigation, a report comes in and this report was made by a woman and it was not far from Murfreesboro and this report was uh, this woman was saying that she had been sexually assaulted by a man and during this assault the man mentioned Laura Salmon he said something to this woman along the lines of um, he would do the same thing to her as he did to Laura Salmon well, police find this report very interesting and they immediately set out to find this guy. And it turns out he went to the same university as Laura. He had a reputation of violence towards women and he was in the area at the time Laura was murdered. Police also believed that the hair from Laura's car was consistent with his hair. With the hair though, I'm going to say they were going off such things as texture, color, and length. Um, so it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't concrete by any means. So say it was a, a, a straight um, three to four centimeter strand of brown hair. I mean, how many, that's going to, that a lot of people could match that description of the texture and the color and the length. So... I mean, it, it wasn't concrete, but but they were still like, well, we've got this hair. This guy's hair matches this. We've got a report that he's assaulting women and he's mentioning Laura's names during these assaults. So that's that. I mean, I would look into that for sure. Even though the hair did somewhat match his hair, the men's jeans found at the crime scene couldn't possibly belong to the suspect in question as they were clearly not a fit. They didn't fit this guy. And I mean, they did say the waist could have fit, but the length would have been too long for this guy. And at first I thought, well, maybe he rolled up the bottoms of the pants. Maybe he just rolled them up. But after hearing, I mean, later on, we're going to hear about some DNA evidence, which was found out much later. And it really, it really wasn't this guy. It, that's why I'm not mentioning his name. It wasn't this guy. Police also wanted to question the man who Laura was seen with at the nightclub the night her and Trina went out on the 30th, so before her murder. But for some reason, they couldn't find this guy, I guess, and he was just never looked into, which I thought that was weird. Probably should have been a priority to locate him as this was probably the last man Laura was intimate with um, before she was murdered or I mean at least that's what police speculate giving the autopsy findings so maybe this guy could have some information but for some reason I didn't hear anything about this guy I was like oh couldn't find him the end I was like, okay all right. So police, they're, they're looking into all these leads. Nothing's panning out. Nobody's in custody. And there, there's no justice for Laura. At Laura's funeral, Dan Goodman, remember him? I talked about him earlier. Laura's friends who um, they, went, they went to the movies with day bef days before her death. I think it was like four days before. Well, he 
went to Laura's funeral and he went up to Lorene, Laura's mother that day. And he said, I promise, I promise you, I will find out who did this to Laura. Yep. That's what he said. Remember that name. 16 years this case and the evidence sit on the shelf. It goes cold. Within these 16 years, Dan Goodman, he works hard. He starts out as a newspaper reporter. Then he goes into um, police crime reporting, writing for the newspaper. And he even writes about unsolved murders. And yes, he wrote about Laura's murder. He never stopped thinking about it. Then he becomes a police officer. Yeah, okay. From there, he is put on a cold case. And guess what cold case is the very first one he is assigned to work on? Yep, Laura Salmons. Dan, he never forgot his promise and he never forgot Laura. And now he's in control of the investigation. By now, it's the year 2000, and DNA testing is much better than it was in 1984. And all that evidence is sitting in the evidence locker, all sealed up, just waiting to be analyzed. Part of that evidence is the men's genes left at the crime scene. Back in 1984, all they knew about the genes was that there was blood spatter on them, and that the genes were obviously left at the scene of the crime. They couldn't confirm whose blood was on them, but they suspected the genes belonged to the killer. And that, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're like, well, it was Laura's blood on the genes, but there was no concrete evidence again. Like DNA testing was not there yet. But now, now that's years later. The genes can be re-examined. And at this time, they not only confirmed that the blood was Laura's on the men's jeans but that the killer was wearing them and kneeling down as he committed the crime as the blood spatter told them a story so we the, the investigators had advanced in dna testing they had advanced in uh, blood spatter reading i guess you could say and because of where the blood spatter was on the the jeans they could tell that whoever wore them while murdering Laura was kneeling down because there was only blood from the knee upwards not not the not the calf part of them also discovered was more dna evidence on the jeans but it wasn't blood it was semen this semen did not match the semen that was found on Laura's underwear or from the vaginal swab taken from Laura, which confirms police's original suspicion that Laura had consensual sex unrelated to her murder. And whoever killed her was was different from her last sexual partner. So that's I mean, that's going to be really hard to, to to look at in a case because you're going to think, oh, well, maybe whoever murdered her also sexually assaulted her. But again, there was no evidence of sexual assault and they could prove now that it was two separate DNA samples and that their con conclusion is accurate. So whose semen was on the genes? Who's, whose was that? Who does that belong to? Answer that question. You're going to find out who was wearing those jeans when Laura was murdered, meaning you're going to find the killer. To get the answers, Dan must first gather suspects DNA. Dan Goodman, he follows up on a lead that he hears about. And this lead 
uh, came from some place kind of weird. He, he, it was from a high school, from a local high school. There was a boy there and somebody had reported that this boy was going around saying that his father murdered a woman and discarded of her body in a quarry, which I was like, what the fuck? I mean, that's fitting the MO here because Laura was murdered and left at a quarry. Is it possible that this kid's dad murdered Laura? Who is this guy? Dan Goodman, he's on the case. He tracks down this kid. Well, he really wanted to talk to this kid's father in question, but actually the kid's father had died. And I heard that he was shot to death. So his dad died from being shot. And I, this boy's father, he had a violent record. And I mean, he died in a violent way. So one can only assume that he lived a pretty dangerous, violent life. Dan Goodman, he's still thinking like, hey, just because this guy's dead doesn't mean he didn't do this. Like, I've, I've got to get this DNA. So when he can't get to the to the guy, obviously. So instead, he asks the family members to give their DNA to be tested against the DNA found on the genes to see if it could be this boy's father. But the test results come back negative again that's why I'm not saying this guy's name he was a suspect and he was cleared so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say his name Dan Goodman also submits his DNA to be tested because I I mean let's look at let's look at it he he did know Laura and he did go out with her so he was like you know what I want the integrity of this case to be really good I want everything to be ethical I'm gonna clear my name because you know, I've, I want to, I'm assuming because he wanted to probably submit evidence and say, yeah, I knew Laura, we went out and, and he wouldn't want the defense to be questioning him. Well, how do we know you didn't do it? So immediately he's like, test my DNA, um, chop that avenue off. The, the defense can't go down that lane. Uh, and he was clear. So yeah, he submits his DNA. It's also not a match. Dan also locates the man who was a suspect in 1984. Do you remember the woman who reported the sexual assault um, saying the man who sexually assaulted her mentioned Laura Salmon when he was committing that crime? This man's DNA is gathered and he's also cleared. So his DNA did not match either. Who do you think Dan is looking for as well? Yep, that's right. Kyle Gilly. I mean, he's looking at Kyle. He's reading over the cold case he was there in 1984 he was close to this case he he knows some things he wants Kyle's DNA Kyle had moved to Florida two years after Laura was murdered and he stayed there ever since he had been divorced twice uh at this point in time he had a police record that included aggravated sexual battery and attempted burglary so Dan heads to Florida he wants to have a chat with Kyle and hopefully get a DNA sample. Unfortunately, Dan could not question Kyle, but another officer in that Florida area, he was successful in doing so. So this officer was briefed. He knew everything about the case. So then he questioned Kyle. During this interview, Kyle said he never had sex with Laura days before the murder, which directly contradicts what he said back in the 80s. As he said, they had sex on the 30th before he went to work. Um, so I don't know what, 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 what's happening there. He also would not admit to um, him having 
being jealous towards Laura in any way and that he was never violent to her. So he's, he's, Dan can't believe what, he probably read the report and was like, whoa, whoa. So later we will hear from many people who will testify in detail against what Kyle is saying. He did, however, admit that the genes found at the crime scene were probably his. And when police tell him that they confirmed the blood spatter on the genes was Laura's, Kyle then asked for an attorney. The genes found at the scene that day would have been Kyle's size in 1984, and he admitted that they were probably his. All that's left is to test the DNA. Police managed to obtain Kyle's DNA through a warrant, and they test it. They test it against the DNA found on the genes, and it is a match. They've got a match. They've got the green light here. And Dan Goodman says the day they received the results of, of that match was exactly, it to the day, 16 years since Laura's murder. Exactly. Absolutely crazy. What is even more crazy about this case is that Kyle should have been arrested for this crime when it happened because so many people were talking about how violent and abusive he was towards Laura. This was no secret. Um, he was jealous and he was controlling and he would physically assault her in front of witnesses, which I'm going to talk about soon because this was, this man would do this in front of so many people, broad daylight, didn't matter who was around. Dan Goodman did get a chance to interview Kyle in Florida eventually. And when he did this, he got Kyle to sign a statement to which Kyle said he was never abusive to Laura. And he also added in, or any woman, um, he never went to her dorm. He never did all these things that Dan knew he had in fact done. Because remember, Dan was in university with Laura. He would have sought Kyle on the campus back then. So he's like, I literally know you are lying because... I was living in that area. I He was Laura's friend. He lived on the same campus. So I don't know what Kyle was thinking. Did he not know that Dan Goodman was close to Laura? I'm not sure. But anyways, Dan gets Kyle to sign the statement um, saying all these things that Dan knows is, is very much a lie because Dan, he's spent 16 years thinking about this case. He's prepared. The day Dan Goodman had been working towards finally came on November 14th, 2001. That's the day Kyle Gilly was arrested for the murder of Laura Salmon. In the cold case file Dan had, he also discovered there had been an eyewitness who came forward in 1984 saying she saw a man matching Kyle Gilly's description driving a car that matched Laura Salmon's car description and she saw this car driving away from the rock quarry where Laura was murdered on the 31st. The time she said that she saw this happen put Kyle's alibi into question. He couldn't have been sleeping at home if this eyewitness was correct in what she saw. But here's where my research went a little haywire. And I think... I think this might have just been something to do with the document I was reading. I think maybe something was put in wrong because I didn't hear this brought up in court. And I mean, the defense surely would have noticed this if 
if this was accurate. So in the court text I read about this case on casetext.com, it read that the eyewitness said that they saw the man matching Kyle's description driving the car that matched the description of Laura's car away from the rock quarry. She's in the in the document I read, it said she said that was around 440 to 445. Which, yes, that still does conflict with his alibi, okay? That's not what's in question. Here's where my confusion started. In the same document, I read that Trina saw Laura's car in the grocery store parking lot at 3.30 that same day. Remember, she was taking groceries out to a customer's car, and she was like, oh, why is Laura's car parked over there? She said that was around between 3 and 3.30. And then investigators found Laura's car after midnight in that parking lot, meaning it had not moved. So uh, this timeline was really weird to me. I, if Kyle was driving Laura's car between 440 and 445 from the rock quarry, how could it have been parked in the parking lot at 330? So an hour before the eyewitness saw it. I'm not really sure. I wish I had the entire court transcript to clear this up, but I could not find any, any clarity in this. But it also wasn't brought up by the defense in court. So I'm thinking there's just something going on with with the input, the inputted time in, in the casetext.com document that I read. I'm not sure, but I wanted to say that. I wanted to be, I wanted to be thorough in this because I literally I looked for about an hour. Let's just move on. Um, let's forget about that time thing because it really hooked me for a while. I was I looked into that for so long. Couldn't clarify that. But let's move on to other evidence that was brought into court. Let's have a look at what's going on in the court case. First, I'm going to talk about some of the people who testified about Kyle's violent and aggressive behavior towards Laura because there were so many people who testified. I I don't have enough time to put them all in here. So we're just going to talk about a few of them. A woman named Mary Brown, she testified in court Uh, what she witnessed and it was alarming. Mary was Laura's resident advisor when living in the dorms. Uh, Their job is to deal with everyday problems within the dorms amongst occupants also known as RAs. She said that Kyle would come visit Laura there and one time she had to call campus police on him. She was informed by other residents that evening about a noise complaint. They were like, hey, someone's being really loud. We don't know what's going on. And when she checked it out, it was Laura's dorm and Kyle was in there. The two were having a heated argument. When Mary knocked on the door and Laura opened it, she could see Laura had a bloody nose. And she also had a mark on her her right cheek, which was red. And it was very clear that Laura was in distress like she was crying Mary asked Kyle to leave and then he started to verbally abuse her he started to verbally abuse Mary calling her a bitch and telling her to mind her own business well guess what Kyle this she's an RA this is her business so she called campus police Instead of leaving before campus police got there, Kyle then escalated things and grabbed Laura not only by her arm but also by her hair and drug her to the nearby stairwell down the hallway. He then lifted her over the stairwell, which was on the third floor, and said, quote, I will kill you, bitch, unquote. Yeah. 
Laura later told Mary that Kyle was angry because he suspected Laura had been seeing other men. So right there, in that one testimony, it shows that that statement Kyle signed was a lie because that showed he he was jealous and violent towards Laura. Let's hear a few more, though. Reed Ridley said that in 1983, he and Laura had been at the local theater. Uh, They were working on the same play. He saw Kyle parked out front in his car. Laura was standing outside of Kyle's car, and it appeared they were arguing. There was some distress there. For whatever reason, Laura reached in through the window. Reed believed it was uh, believed that it was Laura trying to grab the keys out of the ignition, possibly. When she put her arm in the window, Kyle rolled the window up and then her arm was stuck in between this window. Kyle then started driving away and Laura had to run alongside the car or she would have been dragged. And eventually her arm managed its way way out of the window. And in his words, he said after her arm got free, she went sprawling. So out of control, running around. I'm not, I don't know what that means, but sprawling. So Connie Shelton, she was another one who testified saying she saw Kyle grab Laura's arm on two occasions and try to get her to leave with him. One of these was at a party and the other time was from band practice. Uh, Connie also said that she saw letters that Kyle had written to Laura. And in those letters, he wrote something to the effect of, if he couldn't have her, then no one would. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was what was in those letters Kim Brown said she saw Kyle take from Laura's home after her murder, um, before they went to that party. I mean, that's pretty damning stuff if police got a hold of those letters. Melinda Edwards testified that she saw Kyle grab Laura's hair and smash her head off a car at a party, which she actually reported to police. She also said she saw another incident when they were in high school. Kyle had forced Laura's head into a locker and said something about how she won't break up with him. So he was being aggressive with her, shoved her head in this locker, was like, you're not going to break up with me. And Melinda also said that she's pretty sure, she's pretty sure she also heard Kyle make a death threat to Laura in that moment as well. Shelly Davenport testified that after Laura's murder in 1984, she met Kyle at a party. She was new to high school. It said sophomore. I think that that means new. And she may not have known who he was or who Laura was. I'm not sure how big their school is. But Shelly ended up leaving the party and going to a rock quarry with Kyle where she said he confessed. She said that Kyle said, you don't want to end up like Laura Salmon. She had no idea who he was talking about. And when she asked, like, what are you talking about? Who are you talking about? What, you know, who's Laura Salmon? He said, oh, that's my ex-girlfriend. And he also added in that he had killed her. Mm -hmm. This was very concerning to Shelly. So she went home and she confided in her father. So remember, this was 1984 still. Like, this is the same year. And her father, he didn't want to hear, he didn't want to hear about this. He didn't want to, he didn't want her to be involved. He didn't want to be involved. And he told her, keep your mouth shut. So she did until July of 2000, when she 
came out and said, yep, this is what he said to me. I was told to keep my mouth shut, but I'm not, I'm not doing it anymore. So good for you, Shelly, finally speaking up. Honestly, I don't know if, if, if it would have went anywhere in 1984. I'm not really sure what was happening there. Um, another, let's keep going. We'll just look at a few more here. A man named Brad Craver. He testified that he had been a pizza delivery boy when Laura lived in the dorms at university. So he was delivering pizzas and she ordered a pizza one night or someone in the dorm ordered a pizza. Either way, Laura and Brad, they start talking and they end up going out on a date. During that date, Laura talked about how she was scared of Kyle. Yet she said, oh, I'm assuming she was like, oh gosh, my ex-boyfriend, I'm scared of him. I'm trying to get away from him. So it sounds like Kyle and Laura's relationship was in that in-between stage of, you know, they were dating and now their relationship is very turbulent. She's trying to get out of it. He's doing everything he can to stay in it. One of them's out, one of them in. Laura, she was telling people, I'm trying to get away from him. And, you know, he, he just, he wouldn't leave her alone. Another guy named Clay Sharon testified saying he and Laura went out on some dates and one night Kyle showed up. Laura must have been scared for Clay's well-being and told him to stay in the car. When Laura got out uh, to talk to Kyle, an argument ensued, okay? And Kyle also yelled at Laura, and this is um, fucking weird. Kyle yells at Laura, how does his dick taste? Referring to her date. So yeah, really painting a picture of Kyle here. Um, for that's probably enough witness testimonies. I feel like you get the picture. I feel like you 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 get the situation. Um, the prosecution said that after Laura had finished work, so this is this is the crime that they're laying out in court. They're saying Laura finished work that day on the thirty first at one p.m. Kyle somehow found her and convinced her to go swimming at the rock quarry, and they headed out there in her car. Once at the rock quarry, the two started to argue, perhaps about Laura dating other men. At some point, I would assume it was when Laura was getting ready to go swimming, um, as she was found with only her bra on. Um, Kyle, while wearing his jeans straddled Laura and struggle and the and the struggle took place he then grabbed a rock and beat her to death with it out of anger um, after he took her life he assessed the scene and realized that he had blood on his pants so he took them off and he covered Laura's body up with his jeans and then also her jeans and the black jacket and then he fled the scene Okay, that's what they're that's what they're saying happened here. And I think there's something to say about how he left Laura's body there. He made a conscious decision to cover up her body. And to me that says either he didn't want anyone to see her her nude because remember he's he's incredibly jealous or he was making an attempt to cover up his his crime. Like this was a half-assed subconscious reaction where he was like, "Oh no." and and put and tried to cover it up and I feel like it I feel like that act of of him doing that it also shows shame or guilt for what he had done and he just needed to cover her up so he couldn't see what he had done anymore you know granted it was a, a few articles of clothing but I think there's I think there's something I, I think there's something psychological um with that aspect of the, of this crime I also wanted to add in my theory okay this was not proven this is just a theory I had because of the of 
you know, the, the lack of clothes Laura was wearing when she was found. Um, it's possible that, you know, she was getting ready to go swimming. So she was taking off her clothes or maybe it's possible that Kyle was trying to have sex with her and, you know, he got that far with her. And then she was like, no, like, I don't want to have sex. And maybe that made him really angry. Maybe it was a combination between her not wanting to have sex with him um, and her seeing other men. And he just couldn't, couldn't take the rejection. He couldn't handle it. So whether he was forcefully uh, got Laura's clothes off and was trying to have sex, she would have struggled. She wouldn't have wanted to have sex with him. And yeah, maybe he just lost it. The evidence then suggests that he fled the scene. And that's when the eyewitness, and this eyewitness is named Gladdy Mears, saw him driving Laura's car heading away from the rock quarry. Um, Gladdy even told her boss about it later. So in 1984, Gladdy saw this, and then she learned about the murder. And I think the next day she told her boss, she was like, I was near there and I saw a guy matching Kyle Gilley's description driving a car that matched Laura Salmon's car description. He was alone driving away from the rock quarry and she gave a time. So again, I can't pinpoint that time because I had um, two different times to go off of there. So I'm not sure, but police did investigate this and this made it into court. So I'm assuming they did their due diligence and um, it all lined up. I'll just have to take their word on that because I couldn't find the exact court records for that time. The evidence would then suggest that Kyle must have parked Laura's car at her work and then fled on foot because Trina said she saw the car parked there. And then also that's where investigators found the car. It would take 16 years for DNA analysis to connect the genes to Kyle. They believe Kyle was so angry that Laura was dating other men that he killed her. So that's their, that's the motive that, that they give Kyle. Kyle, he never admits to this, so we won't know. But what we do know is Kyle's previous alibi evidently didn't stand up in court. Um, remember his father said, hey, he was home. I know he was home. I, I didn't really hear much about how they, I guess they debunked it with Gladys' eyewitness of him driving the car. Anyways, Kyle Gilly was found guilty of first degree murder. That's right. They got him. He was found guilty. And in August of 2006, at age 43, he was sentenced to life in prison. He did try to appeal on the grounds of, I believe it was hearsay being evidence, all the, the witness testimonies, um, but he did lose that appeal. I mean, also in court, they brought in the um, people who did the forensic analysis of the wheel from, of the dirt from the wheel well. They had you know, they did have that evidence as well. Um, and I guess they made a, the prosecution made a very convincing argument because guilty. So it took many, many years, but Dan Goodman, he was able to keep his promise to Laura's mother. That's right. He was friends with Laura when they were 18 years old and he never, ever, ever forgot about that promise he never forgot about Laura it seemed like he dedicated his life to finding her murderer what a legend just what a absolute legend I would really like to know why the original investigators didn't solve this case back in 1984 was it a lack of physical evidence 
because they couldn't just go on witness testimony. I'm not sure. But I also read that um, the farmer who found Laura's body wasn't asked to give a statement, which again, I found odd. I also found it odd that they didn't secure the crime scene. I find it odd that they left evidence behind, such as bloody rocks and Laura's necklace. I, I just find a lot of things odd about the original investigation. Just very, very odd. But anyways, that concludes this week's episode. What a legend Dan Goodman is dedicated his life to finding his friend's murderer. Just a, it's a tragic and sad and inspirational case, this one. Um, so yeah, that's it for this week. Uh, like I said earlier, episodes will be released Mondays now, not Fridays. Um, and that's just because my schedule's changing. I've got a new job, which I'm not going to talk about, but I've got a new job. If you did miss that announcement, that was when I posted on Instagram. Um, so if you want to uh, see my Instagram posts and notifications and announcements that I make, please consider following Hell No A True Crime Podcast on Instagram. I also have a TikTok account for the podcast, which I don't use as much as I should, but that's under the same name. Hell No underscore A True Crime Podcast is where you can find us on social media. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Oh,